If you messed up like I did when I was your age in college, know that God loves you just the way you are. Come here, seven-year NFL veteran Steve Grant at the 14th annual RUC Fundraising Banquet. The theme this year is Choosing to Win. Join us for this special evening at the Villa Milano on March 10th. Festivities begin at 6, followed by dinner at 6.30, and then the program at 7 p.m. Make your reservations today at RelationshipsUnderConstruction.com. Are we marching toward a brighter day or just into oblivion? Next on Principles and Policies. Welcome to today's edition of Principles and Policies. I'm your host, Barry Sheets, the Executive Director of the Institute for Principles Policy. And along with me today is our co-host, the Chairman of the Institute, my fellow analyst and very good friend, Chuck Michaels. Barry, it's great to be back with you. You sound good, even though I know you had a, you had a little trouble, but uh, you sound rested. Yeah, well, for the most part. Yeah, for the most part, I'm on my way, Chuck. That's that's the way it works. After you know, we get done recording this on a Thursday. The next day, I go in to submit myself to a bunch of scans and tests to see where we are because I've had rounds of radiation and rounds of immunotherapy on this uh, bone cancer that I have, and we'll see if it's actually done any good so far. I was laughing the other day with a friend of mine, a mutual friend, you know, Robert Owens, a great guy, works with JBS. And we were chatting and I said, well, Robert, I feel fairly optimistic because the last time I talked to my doctor after my last round of immuno, he was telling me like, these are the next steps and we need to get you in for these scans like within a couple of weeks. And then he goes, and then we're going to start you on a round of a single dose immunotherapy that you'll have to do once every four weeks for the next two years. And I said, well, if you're giving me two years, doc, I feel pretty good. <laughs> yeah. They're not sitting there like, well, you know, only have six months to live or three months or yeah, it's pretty aggressive. Now, like, no, okay, yeah, well, we're going to start you, and this will be around. It'll do once a month for two years. I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's that's optimistic. I like that. <laughs> it really is. I mean, you think about it. Yeah, we'll it know, we'll know more after they read your scans. Oh yeah, absolutely, because they got to figure out if the uh, right. if the if the tumor size, shape, mass has changed. Is it growing? Is it getting smaller? Is it looking like it's going in remission? I'm feeling a lot better than I had. I mean, I'm still having difficulties, especially with the uh, spot that's up in the middle of my spine, my back. It's hard to sit up straight and do things, but it's actually started getting a little less problematic over the last couple of weeks. So, you know, I take that as possibly the chemicals and the radiation all working to zap that tumor. And as it dies, the disc that's been obviously impacted, pushed, invaded by it is starting to push back and yeah, yeah. Well, when you get a tug of war in your body between things that should be there and things that shouldn't be there, it hurts. So, <laughs> well, that is a it's a minimal statement. You're right. It's going to hurt. Yeah. Um, and the integrity of those bones has been compromised. Yeah, they have been. And especially in your spine, anytime that happens, you get compression fractures, which are extremely painful. My mother in law fell down in the driveway when we asked her to let us do the things she was doing. She was bringing in groceries with a wagon in the snow and tripped in a spot. We were under construction here. So there's low spots and high spots in the yard. Well, in the snow, she tripped over a high spot and a low spot together. Oh, ouch. And she fell directly on her backside. Well, that created a compression fracture. And when I found her, she was sitting in this depression. 
just sitting there waiting for somebody to come get her out. And I was outside bringing firewood up and I pull up and I go, Janet, what's wrong? What's wrong? Well, I fell down and now I can't get up. At the time, I think she was 85. Oh, yeah. Let's see. She's 87 now. She was 86. Finally, she just could not get the pain in her back to go away. So she went in, the doctor, I think they took an x-ray and they said, you got a compression fracture back there. And she still, to this day, has pain because she's 87. So she doesn't rebuild bone like even me. I'm 66. I just turned 66. And I can still rebuild bone pretty well, but I have a different nutritional picture than a lot of people. And that is because I know the dietary supplements and things to use to reduce inflammation, rebuild bone, and that kind of thing. But still, it takes time. You don't rebuild bone instantly. No, you do not. It takes months. You have to make sure the osteoclasts are still working. And in a lot of cases, you know, older people are, their bones are getting less and less and less dense all the time. Why? Because their body's robbing the bones of the, not just calcium per se, but the micronutrients, trace minerals that go into making bone. A lot of people don't realize silicone and silicon, not silicone. <laughs> a well, yes. Now, you can build other things with silicone. Yeah, one, one your body produces, the other one's produced chemically. Yeah, yes. or, or by chemical plants. companies, yeah. For other uses, things like, oh gosh, molybdenum and all these rare elements you need a little bit of, not a ton of. And, and when you build a bone rebuilding supplement, like part of what I do, you have to take that into consideration and you have to get people to realize it's like rebuilding cartilage. Doc, uh, the medical community says it can't be done. It can be done because I've done it not only to other people, but to myself, but it's not instantaneous. I've been working on rebuilding the cartilage in my hip for years. And basically I'm sort of keeping up with the damage. Well, that's as long as you can keep up with it so that you don't have to have deterioration, you're doing pretty doggone well. Yeah, I'm happy with that. I'm happy that you are getting some relief. Barry's using an old product of mine that expired years ago. We keep around because it does work. <laughs> the problem was we couldn't get it. We couldn't sell it in the expiration time because we're a small company. We're not one of the big guys you see advertising on TV. We advertise on a small little radio station in Rushville, Ohio. That we love dearly, yes. That we love, that's right. The advertisements come as part of our package here when we run this show. And by the way, this is our show for March 4th, 2023. Barry's getting some relief from an old product that I designed, oh gosh, 20 years ago. And we had Glad you did it. <laughs> we went through several batches of that. And there's other stuff we've made in the past that worked re it works really well. When we it's not a big enough, it's a niche market and it doesn't sell enough for us to keep it on the on the books. I may have a set remit. I may send those in for analysis and say, hey, could those get a longer shelf life? Because if I can get them a five year shelf life because the potency doesn't drop, then I could go back to making that product. Yeah, that would be nice. See, then, I mean, it's yeah. Then, I, I'm I'm a testimonial. It's a great product, and it is helping me tremendously. Normal expiry dates, if you don't know everything about the nutrient, is two years. It's automatically assumed to be two years. That's why it was two years. That's really not where we're going today. We're not going to talk about dietary supplements. This is not going to turn into one of those things that you tune into on a Saturday, and yeah. they spend two hours 
yammering on and on about some magic dietary supplement formula that's going to make your hair grow back and make men as active as they were in the bedroom uh, when they were 25 and all those things. I always laugh at those. I'm like, I know what can be done in this industry and what can't. <laughs> and that can't. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> like, all you got to do is look at my head to realize that I do not believe that hair growth, regrowth is really all that possible in some conditions. Yes. But in mine, no, I have, <laughs> uh, I have a genetic predisposition to lose my hair in the way I'm losing it. And if you look at a picture of my dad, 10 years younger than me, he has the same problem. And my grandfather was fully bald. Well, he had the sidewalls and much younger than my dad and I. Nonetheless, that can't be done. So keep that in mind, folks, when you hear some of these claims, they're absurd. And our apologies to any infomercials that happen to show up after we're off the air. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, speaking of infomercials, Chuck, I mean, folks, here we are. We're over a year later. We're still hand-wringing about the situation that's going on in Eastern Europe between Russia and the Ukraine. But I've found it interesting, Chuck, you know, we've crossed the year boundary of when supposedly Russia invaded the Ukraine and started the war. And of course, in the last year, there's been an awful lot of analysis that's been done. There's an awful lot of looking at this, and you can believe that if you want to, but there are also a lot of indications that show that there might have been some aggressive moves by the Zelensky administration in the Ukraine coming out of Kiev that may have touched off the uh, torch and, and set this thing alight. But we're not here to argue who did what. What we're here to argue is whether or not this is something that the United States should be actively engaged in in relation to, you know, taking a side, um, providing military personnel and or materiel to as we've and money as we're doing. Joe Biden just walked another, what was it, five hundred million dollars to Zelensky in the last couple of weeks. And is it in the United States best interest to be, well, as some folks would look at it, possibly fanning the flames of another world war? I'm not one who believes that, Chuck. I don't believe that this is going to rise to a world war level status. I think there are enough cooler heads around this conflict that will probably prevail because let's just put it this way. Russia is not in a position to be advancing the fight on a world war level. Nobody knows how players like China, India, or the, the NATO countries Britain, the United States, anybody else would respond or react. There's been an awful lot of sword rattling in relation to, oh, well, let's let these countries into NATO and create more pressure on Russia. Let's not let this country in. Well, let's do this. Let's do that. China has got their own interests because they want to go in and take part of the Western part of Russia for their own. And so they may be egging on a Russia that they know may not be as strong as they possibly could be in relation to this to actually expand a war so that they can benefit from it. You have other countries in that area like Poland and Hungary who are trying to stay. They're trying to become the new Switzerland. They're trying to stay as neutral as possible and saying, we don't think the whole sanctions thing is a great idea. We don't think this is a great idea because they realize that a lot of their countries are dependent on both the Ukrainian commercial produce because it's the breadbasket of, of Eastern Europe 
and on the oil and energy that they get from Russia. So they're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. And so they're trying to navigate even while the European Union is pounding the desk like Nikita Khrushchev did with his shoe. Right, with his shoe, yes. Screaming, <laughs> screaming for more, bigger, bigger, better bombs to go wipe out the Russia threat. Chuck, you've been looking at this, and yeah. I, I, you're, you're a much better analyst on this, on this military stuff than I am. And yeah. you've been seeing some things. As a matter of fact, you and I both, we, right before we came on here, we talked about an article where some of the mainstream media is actually saying things that they've been trying to suppress for the last year, but they're true. And you have to deal with those uh, realities, uh, at the real politique, as they say, of what's going on in that area. And so yeah, I thought maybe we'd just kind of open it up a little bit and you can give our listeners a little bit better idea of some of the history and the, shall we say, decide who's right and who's wrong here. Okay, here's the bottom line. That article you're talking about is at Zero Hedge. And the title of it is NBC reporter goes to Crimea. I remember part of this. Ukraine has been screaming for the return of Crimea after Russia essentially took it in 2014. And they took it in 2014, uh, just as a, as a uh, kind of a, a bottom line. It's full of Russian nationals who wanted to reunite with Russia. Crimea had only become part of the Ukraine in 1954, Crimea was never part of Ukraine until 1954. And uh, basically, Nikita Khrushchev, who was at the time premier, these words, premier, he was the head of the Politburo. Right. The, the ruling oligarchy in Russia, uh, the Marxist communists. He was Stalin's successor mm -hmm. in, Ru in Russia. Okay. So he right. gave Crimea to Ukraine. Now, remember, at the time, Ukraine was a member of the Soviet Union. What does that mean? The Soviet Union was a union of republics, ostensibly. There was Ukraine, Belarus, the Azerbaijan, Georgia, uh, all these little republics that were part of the uh, Soviet Union. Okay. So in 54, as a kind of a, a, a bribe, if you will, now, Khrushchev gives, gives Crimea to Ukraine and with the sort of the, the proviso that Ukraine remain in the Soviet Union. Okay. So what happened in 1991? The Soviet Union essentially dissolved. Dissolved. It broke up. Yeah. It dissolved. Tear down this, tear down this wall. And tear down this wall in 89, tear down, or, or yeah, what, uh, 88. 88, yeah. Tear down this wall, which happened in three years. The Russian coup, you know, they, I always laugh about the Russian coup, how many people got suckered by that. I go, that was a dog and pony show, folks. What's, what's the first thing you grab if you're going to do a coup d'etat? You grab the TV and radio stations so that you keep everybody in the dark as to what's going on. But instead, they had reporters out. <laughs> reporting on this attempted coup d'etat, blah, blah, blah. It didn't have it, that it, again, dog and pony show. Okay. So almost immediately, several republics voted to stay with Russia. Ukraine was not one of those. Ukraine said, we want to be independent. Now this stems from way back 
way, way, way back. This this goes back to when Russia was an empire. Ukraine considered themselves a conquered land. When the Nazis marched in, lots and lots of Ukrainians joined up with the Nazis to drive the Russians out. A lot of people don't know that. And a lot of people don't know it in the current day in Ukraine, there is a strong neo-Nazi influence. Well, that was one of the um, rationales, I guess I'd say. I mean, some people say excuses that Vladimir Putin was using to, to, for their original incursion last uh, a year ago, February, was that the, uh, the Zelensky regime was basically full of Nazi influences. And they were, because of the Russians' experiences with Nazi Germany yep. during the World War II, they were not going to allow that to fester and grow anymore. Yeah, Germans and Russians, um, not friendly. <laughs> no, not, not at all. Um, so. there, there, believe it or not, at one point, uh, Russia was so empty that, uh, for instance, the, the, the Prussian king was invited to send Germans over to, li- uh, to live in, in the western edges of Russia. Mm-hmm. A lot of German ethnics moved into, into what at the time was uh, western uh, Russia, which also included the Ukraine. Um, and remember, these areas were very underpopulated. Why? Well, <laughs> ask anybody who's been to, to uh a Russia in January. Um, it's cold. It's f- for, you know, it's uh, foreboding and it's, it's a, it's a very, uh, uh, not a pleasant place to be in the wintertime. In the summertime, it's beautiful. It's like a lot of places, you know, it's like North Dakota. If you like 25 below zero, go to North Dakota in, in, uh, in January. If, if you like it a hundred degrees, go to North Dakota in, july because it's the same kind of territory flat it's a it's a wheat growing area russia known as the breadbasket of europe and all that okay so what happens recently well in 2014 there was a a a number of groups in the crimea were sort of being uh oh shall we say oppressed a little bit why because they're russian nationals and ukrainians want to purge russian nationals or at the time did in 2014, they would like very much to uh, wipe out uh, Russian influence in in the Ukraine. So what did Ukraine do? They declared independence and asked Russia to come in and and help them get their independence. And in return, they might acquiesce to come over to into the Russian uh, Republic. Well, that's exactly what happened because Russia sent tanks in uh, ran um, Ukraine off, and if I, you and I were teaching a Constitution class when that happened, if I you, remember that. If you recall, we sat there. And we had to give people a, a geography lesson. They didn't even know where the Ukraine was or where the Crimea was, and we had to give a little lesson of why it's strategically important, especially to the Russians, and uh, um, you know what some of the the back and forth were well that part of this the whole thing the 1954 transfer came up because that area has never been ethnically ukrainian it's always been ethnically russian and so in the midst of they, there are a lot of people there was a referendum in 2014 do you want to stay with ukraine or go with the soviet union or with russia 
I keep saying the Soviet Union. There wasn't a Soviet Union, Russia. And there was a 95% vote to go with Russia. And everybody says, if you believe that, I've got, you know, cliff face property you may want to look at. Okay, fine. Yeah, I don't like referendums run in the middle of a of a political unrest. Uh um but Yeah, it seems seems a bit off. But the fact is this article in Zero Hedge by Tyler Durden talks about an NBC reporter, not exactly a uh, a bulwark of conservative thought. Uh and, not, and, no, no nobody would consider anybody in MSM uh yeah. too much a bulwark of conservative thought, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, he went over there thinking he's going to report on how the, the, the Crimeans are up in arms and they want, they want this to get the Ukraine in there and run the Russians off. And he finds out exactly the opposite. He said, these people are Russians. They're Russians through and through. They want to remain in Russia. He goes, they're, uh, Ukraine is going to have a rough road to hoe if they think they're going to take back Crimea. It's not going to happen. And not only that, it may be a stupid idea because one thing that Russia does, uh, it tends to defend itself uh, to the full extent of their capabilities. And by that, I mean, they're not afraid to, to throw in personnel, weapons, uh, create militia groups to, uh, you know, do uh, partisan work. They're right. not afraid to do any of that. And in fact, the Russians already have 500,000 casualties in this thing, and they're not stopping. Now, what are we getting back? Well, um, I'm getting reports back that Russians are surrendering en masse and that, uh, you know, uh, Russian men are fleeing and, and to avoid the draft and going to the, the meat grinder in Ukraine and all this. And I'm like, well, maybe. But the fact is, not only have they not collapsed, if you'll recall, we were getting a month in the fact that Russia was about to collapse in the field. Uh-huh. All these surrenders and all the uh, the wonderful uh, victories that the Ukrainians were winning and all these things, and it all turned out to be nonsense. We're, we are now 54 weeks later, a year and two weeks, and it's not happening. Not only that, uh, battles that were expected to go to Ukraine, the Russians basically knocked them back. So the fact is that this is this is turning into a uh, a sort of a uh, well, a Vietnam, if you will, or maybe a Russian Afghanistan, but it's turning into it for both sides. Now, there's an old military maxim that. Uh, uh, the defense always has the advantage in a war. And okay. you can imagine why they have what's called the interior lines. Exactly. In other words, they have all access to the personnel, to the materiel, uh, food, clothing, all that stuff without having to ship it to the front. Well, the shorter, much, much, much shorter shipment to the front. Russia has to get the stuff in from the whole, the entirety of the Russian Republic. So obviously the Ukrainians have an advantage. That's why they've been able to hold out for so long. What are we risking now with, with uh, Russia looking at things now? Uh, let's 
take a look at how the West is treating this. We're have um, we've caught ourselves in we painted ourselves into a corner, if you will. Okay. Uh, because now, we, by we, you're talking about the United States, not just the United States, but uh, NATO in general. All okay. The, all right. All so, the NATO good. countries. They've painted. So, guys, so, so we're talking about the whole, all the NATO countries, all the Allied countries, folks. Western Europe, Western Europe, and the United States, mm-hmm. uh, and Turkey, which interestingly is a uh, neighbor of Russia and is very unenthusiastic about <laughs> about some of this, um, but. Uh, what the corner they painted themselves into is do, pulling aggressive actions coming out in favor of one side and not the other, rather than staying neutral and saying, okay, we, we see that there's a problem on both sides of this issue. Russia is hardly as pure as the driven snow, but neither by far are the Ukrainians. Yeah. And I think that's very interesting, Chuck, because, you know, throughout this whole conflict, especially from the U S media, it has always been, you know, and of course, this drumbeat goes on and it is tied into our realpolitik in, in the United States about the Democrat Party wanting to make it seem like Russia interfered in the elections. And that's how we got Trump in. Well, of course, yeah. that whole that whole storyline has been blown up. I oh, mean, absolutely. it has been it has been de- completely debunked. And if you only listen to the January 6th committee and Adam Schiff and, and those people, you'd believe that you know Russia was still the puppet master guiding everything that Trump's doing right now and, and, you know, helping the Republicans to uh, gain control of of the white house and gain control of the Congress. But what we found out is there was, that was all smoke and and no substance that the reports, the dossier, everything was fabricated through the auspices of the Democrat money machine. And they paid to gin up, these false reports in the Christopher Steele dossier, which basically was just full of complete lies in order to try to tank a political candidate. And so they have to keep this facade up that Russia is the evil empire, which is easy in the United States because, you know, we, we, a a lot of our folks who are, of you know, who are voting and who are paying any attention are grew up the cold war era. So, you know, we have this lingering, uh, national tradition of being suspicious of or fearing uh, big, nasty Russia when, you know, geopolitics is a lot more complicated than that. Oh, yeah. It's not just Russia, Russia, Russia. You have much more to fear from some of your friends than you do your enemies. Often. Very often, yes. And so, again, and this is where we challenge our listeners, don't just get your your information from just one source. Study, look, go out there. You know, read. The, I, I just read uh, there were three speeches that were given uh, a couple of weeks ago, which was like the uh, the first anniversary of the uh, incursion, if you want to call it, uh, that was that happened in the Ukraine. One speech was obviously by Vladimir Putin, um, and it was propaganda. You know, it was obviously bent toward trying to gin up uh, excitement in his own country for the ongoing slog that they've got right now in the Ukraine. One was by Joe Biden when he went over and handed Zelensky a half a million or half a billion dollars. And he had a speech about, you know, freedom and, you know, pre- preserving freedom. 
<laughs> which was all propaganda. It was garbage. Yeah, of course it was. But then you had a speech, the third speech, and 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 we'll link to this because this was an article out of a book, out of a publication called Chronicles Magazine. Chuck, I don't know if you've ever read Chronicles or not. I've read Chronicles, yeah. I I love the magazine. When I can't sleep at night, I'll go over and pull up old art, old articles and read them. Um, but the third speech was given by uh, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, talking about the necessity for trying to maintain peace in the region. Now, Orban's taking some shots right now because he's endorsed the Chinese. Uh, you, you, Premier Z has come in and, and thrown out an idea in order to try to get a peace in that between Russia and the Ukraine. And, and Orban, whose who's country Hungary is fairly close next door to both. And as I said, uh, you know, Hungary and Poland both are sitting there kind of like, well, we have to depend upon... Ukraine for produce, food, stuffs, grain, that kind of thing. We have to depend on Russia for gas and oil and energy and keeping yeah. the lights on. So he's trying to create some kind of a middle ground here about, and the fact that he's very critical of the European Union deciding they're going to play favorites and you know go all in against Russia because he thinks that's a dangerous move for everybody concerned, for every country that's concerned. And he could be right, but We'll oh, link yeah. that, and and you know I'd love people because they have links to the each of those speeches, obviously translated into English, and so you should read for yourself because it paints a ho- totally different picture. You see it from one per- one viewpoint. You see it from the viewpoint of well, Joe Biden. Well, we can talk about a little bit more about Joe Biden and some of the things he's been saying lately. I, I you know hopefully he stayed on message with his teleprompter. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. And then you can see from a third party who has a legitimate concern that both sides, neither one side, you know, obliterates the other one because it can create massive hardships and a ripple effect throughout not just Eastern Europe, but in fact, the entire world. Well, look, and yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, no, I'm just saying that that's something we need to, we need to put into our thinking process and re- realize it is war and geopolitics like this isn't a binary option. It isn't a yes, if it's on, then the opposite's off. If one's good, the other one has to be evil. Right. It's not there's that way too, at all. There's too much gray area. And as they call the fog of war, can really obliterate the, the fine lines that help you to see that maybe there's more to this than meets the eye. Maybe instead of sending billions of dollars to one side, we should stay back and say, Folks, we're going to support, you know, getting exports from from you guys, but it's going to have to be under the auspices of your coming to the table to negotiate a peace settlement. Yes, exactly. And that's what Trump's talking about. Um, uh, Thank you. You went right where I was planning to go. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and, and, And Donald Trump, who is now running for president again, and, you know, God bless him. He is actually, and of course, he could come in with a little bit of gravitas. I mean, even though he was, you know, illegitimately uh, eliminated from consideration for being a nominee for a Nobel Peace Prize, he navigated three of the worst uh, regional conflicts in Eastern Europe and in the Middle East to peace negotiations. And we talked about them on, on previous programs. He is very good at getting people to the table and getting them 
to stop being, you know, completely insanely one-sided and figuring out, okay, yeah, we both have to survive here. How do we do it? You know, Syria, Turkey, um, you know, in the Middle East, he's been, I, I can't believe how little credit and I'm being, you know, okay, you may say, well, you're, you're, you're my guy. Yeah, I'm proud to say it. I, I believe that the guy's got the, what it takes to help bring this country back to greatness and try to restore peace in other areas of the world that are significantly strategically important to our interests. And I'm glad that he's running again because maybe this time, now that the Democrat uh, yeah, propaganda machine has been partially uh, destabilized with this whole thing with the Russia uh, collusion hoax being blown out of the water, that maybe more people will stop and say, you know what? I really don't like the way things are going right now. And yeah, he had some good, and we had prosperity and there was peace and peace negotiations. Countries were coming to the table that wouldn't talk to each other, but they were signing agreements because he knew how to negotiate. Well, okay. I opened up Chronicles magazine. What's the first article I see? Are we the baddies? And the, the subject of that article is what I wanted to bring up in that uh, one of the things that, for instance, the United States has been involved in, we blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. The well, direct- yeah, 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 yeah. Let's put it this way: it hasn't been proven, but no, very few people in the uh, world, uh, you know, geopolitical intelligence world, believes otherwise. The government has basically stopped vociferously denying it. That's a mm-hmm. tacit admission that it, it actually happened, especially since the president of the United States said, if Russia does this, that, and another thing, the Nord Stream pipeline is going to be a, a smoking hulk of metal. Well, and that, that's, another one, that's another one of those things that you have to be careful what you show Joe Biden in a confidential national security briefing because he's liable just to say it on the stump because he, he has some cognitive issues. Yes, exactly. But the fact is that we have now performed a a provocative act against a nation who is at war in which ostensibly we are neutrals. Yeah. And and, and again, you know, let's qualify that by saying that that is a that is a reasonable assumption to make. It has not been proven one way or the other who actually bombed Nord Stream. But one of the things that doesn't make any sense was the initial um, uh, claim by the Biden administration that Russia blew up their own pipeline. Yes. An absurdity because that's the money they needed to continue the war effort by selling gas (laughs) to, to Western Europe. Yeah. Including those countries like Hungary and Poland that I'm talking about. Exactly. Hungary, Poland, um, Czech, the Czech Republic, the Slovak Republic, all those places that are gas poor. Who, yep. who need Russia's uh, natural gas to can keep their electric plants and their home heating and uh, name it going. So the fact is that that we are painting ourselves into a corner by picking sides in again in a conflict which really has no good guys. There aren't any good guys here. Yep. Um, that's that's that. Well, that's that's really the true nature of realpolitik, folks. Yeah, that's it. There are no good. There are no good guys. Everybody's in it for what they can get out of it, or what they can, or what you know, criminal enterprise they can they can they can run. 
And that gets us back to uh, Joe and Hunter Biden and the laptop, which has now been proven to be legitimate. Yeah. Um, and so and so now that the Republicans have control of uh, the House of Representatives, you know, Jim Jordan and others on the judicial on the Judiciary Committee are starting investigations into has the Biden family sold out America's interest to some of the high bidders like China? Well, and, uh, and, also, and they don't but, have the MSM being able to cover for them any cover for them anymore because even places like the New York Times and the Washington Post are becoming uber critical of everything that the Biden administration is doing right now. And of course, I don't want to get into deep because we talked about it earlier, but their response to the East Palestine train derailment here in Ohio has proven to be an Achilles heel for them. Oh, absolutely. Uh, And we may be seeing the resignation of one or more uh, cabinet level members uh, because of the pressure from the complete and utter failure of the Biden administration to deal with this responsibly. If it doesn't lead to that, then what needs to happen is an impeachment and have them removed by Congress. Um, yeah, uh, you know, the Senate has to convict, but, uh, and, uh, if it goes down purely partisan, uh, lines, but if it becomes obvious, uh, they, they do need to at least be, uh, voted for an impeachment and a, a, a impeachment means questioning and, uh, the penalty for impeachment is removal from office. Exactly. Um, and, but you know, you brought up China as one of the, one of the corruptors of the Biden group, but you forgot about Ukraine. Well, yeah, I, well, I was leaving that for you. <laughs> <laughs> Ukraine, one of the big players in the Biden scandal was the fact that, uh, uh, uh Biden's son, Hunter, who has absolutely no expertise or training or uh, experience in gas production, gas and oil production, was paid some incredible amount of money uh, to uh, basically the whole the whole Hunter Biden laptop thing is that Daddy was promised a piece of the action, and he at the time by Daddy I mean Joe Biden. He was vice president of the United States. And if you'll recall, he took his son on Air Force Two to the Ukraine to do the negotiating for this deal. Remember, he is a sitting vice president of the United States. And at the end, when it became clear that the government that preceded the Zelensky government, the one that Zelensky ousted with a coup d'etat the premier of ukraine zelensky uh uh, yes and remember most people don't realize that because the mainstream media talks about have fair and free election of zelensky yes that's not how that happened that sure is not how that happened he was quoting fairly and freely elected after he seized power and eliminated the uh opposition parties opposition parties he outlawed all the opposition parties so we can play this game all day long. But the fact is that Joe Biden, that that payoff back to Ukraine was exactly a payback for the money that fell into the Biden machine coffers. Uh, I, 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 can I prove that? No. But anybody with eyes can see it. If you can't yeah. see it, then you've blinded yourself uh, with a blind I stand with Ukraine. Um a stance. And, you know, and, and Chuck, I do stand with Ukraine. 
I yeah. stand with the I stand with the innocent people of Ukraine who are being uh, caught up in having their homes destroyed, having to be, become refugees, uh, losing family members, dying, starving, losing their 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 ability to, to work and 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 you know provide for their families. I also stand with the Russians who are experiencing much the same thing. Um, you know, the forays into you know, Russia by uh, the Ukraine, you know, firing missiles, uh, attacking those regions that are Russian ethnic, like uh, the um, Crimea and the Donbass region. I mean, I, I don't take a side on who's right or who's wrong geopolitically as a nation state. But I do side with those people who are hurting because right. of the avarice and the, uh, you know, lust for power that all of these leaders show and use their people as pawns in order to advance their own political ends. The young men who are being wasted on both exactly. sides of this conflict. Yes, exactly. Just because they have a uniform and they're carrying weapons doesn't make them evil. It makes them just like when you get if you go into the U.S. military and they send you to go over and, you know, become a sniper and kill people in foreign countries. Well, you don't know these people. You're told that they're you know, doing evil things. And some may be uh, because, you know, we know that no man's heart is, is good, uh, that we are born into sin and that, you know, we are sinful from our mother's womb. And so everybody is, is subject to being sinful and being evil in that respect. But. You know, when someone is directed by those who are in authority over them to, you know, take the lives of people, that's something they have to weigh fairly heavily. And I mean, I get why there are conscientious objectors. I get why there are members of the military who would rather take a dishonorable discharge than to kill someone else. Because, like I said, there black and whites don't exist in a war zone. Ever. Ever, ever, ever. And, uh, and so, and so, I grieve, but I pray not just for for Ukraine. I pray for Russia. I pray for the countries around them. You know, I pray for all of us because it's so easy to replace logic, thinking, and compassion with bombs, guns, and military power, and think that you're right, but you're hardly ever right. Um, so, you know, again, and I'm not taking the John MacArthur route that, well, the American revolution was a bad thing and you know, <laughs> it was sinful. Uh, so, so don't go there, but you know, just the, the fact that th there is, there is no good guy and bad guy that you can clearly say, well, God's on the side of the good guy over here, you know, whether it's Ukraine or Russia, or whoever you look at and God's opposed to and hates the bad guy, the other side, because that's not usually how it goes. Well, one thing I, I, I'm going to give back pass to John MacArthur, by the way. Well, who, please do. Who has been rethinking his position? I, I, I don't mean I don't mean to shoot no, no, him no. down, but I, I know historically, you know, his position has been less less than uh, what oh, I would uh, what I would appreciate in, in take, that respect. His take on the American Revolution is flat out absurd. absurd. Uh, but he has been rethinking his his ideas regarding Romans 13 and its implications and limits um, since uh, about 2021. Because uh, okay. his church was ordered to close, which he did. And then he said, you know, <laughs> this isn't right. 
Yeah, uh, he, he, well, it came home. It was, it was, it, he was good with it while it was NIMBY, yes. not in his backyard. But as soon as it moved into the backyard, oh, well, wait a minute. I don't think I like this. Yeah, exactly. NIMBY, uh, not in my backyard. <laughs> exactly. Uh, no, Barry, you, 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 we've pretty much hit it on the head. The fact is, there's no good players in this. And the fact is that we are dabbling dangerously. Uh, uh, You've say, stated that this isn't a you know a, a real big war scenario. I think it is. Um, the wrong steps, uh, provision of weapons directly to one side or the other could easily lead to a a huge expansion of the war, and that's why you've got places like Poland. Remember, Poland's a buffer state. Hungary's a buffer state. Bulgaria's a buffer state. Um. If you uh, all got to do is look at a map. Uh, some of the Balkans are sort of sort of little ouchy about this as well, and they don't agree much with each other on anything. <laughs> and I think they're a little agreed that this could expand into things that they don't want to deal with. Um, and uh, because Russia has a tendency, again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, they're not afraid to throw men, material, weapons, uh, uh, you know, they'll go all in. And um, um, I don't think they're afraid of uh, Western Europe at all. The only part of uh, the only part of NATO they're really afraid of is us. And you know what? The closest outpost is England, and that's 4,000 miles away. And it's going to take sure. us time to build up. Yeah, do we have a navy that we can go in and do this? That we could close off the the Black Sea ports easily. Um, we could close off the Mediterranean easily. But the Russians aren't fooling around with the navy much anymore. They've sold off a lot of their navy and scrapped it. Why? Because in the current state of geopolitics, it really didn't serve them anything. They still don't have a warm water port after trying for four hundred years. Closest they've got is Sevastopol in the Crimea. They're not giving that up. No, no. So, uh, uh, look, this this thing could go. It's time to stop feeding the monster so that both sides starve a little bit and say, okay, it's time to negotiate. Well, and that was my thought of, you know, going to them and saying, you know what, we're not going to supply you guys with money. We're not going to supply you with material or weapons. We will create trade agreements with you for your produce and for your energy, but only on the, uh, you know, and it would be scaled to as much as you guys decrease uh, your involvement with each other in this conflict, we increase the, the amount of uh, exports that we will, we will take from you. The one point I would make is, you know, we fed the beast in Afghanistan in the, in the late seventies and early eighties. And what happened with that, what did we get out of it? Uh, we, got, we got we got a complete and utter train wreck called the Taliban, um, ISIS. Uh, let's let's just keep going. I mean, Mujahideen. We fed we, yeah. we fed we fed the Mujahideen material, weapons, and advisors throughout the Russian yeah um, you and, know in incursion into Afghanistan because we were fighting the Cold War. But what we did was we armed and trained those who turned around and became terrorists against us. Yeah, that that basically they morphed into Al Qaeda and the uh, uh, Taliban, the Taliban, the ISIS states. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
So that's what happens, folks. There's always a law of unintended consequences. People who are selling you the idea that we should be out there raw rawing and and making sure that you know all that uh, our friends in Ukraine well, they have they they're semi friendly to us, but so is Russia. Um, right now, yeah, Russia, you, you can't get most people to believe that they think Russia is no. again the evil empire. No, they because won't. of our because of our history, but the point is that. It, it, it's it's a it's a different era. They realized that the West is where they got to do their trade. They tried that closed Soviet system where they only traded with uh, other communist countries, and it led to the breakup of the old Soviet Union and the collapse of all the countries who were inside the old the old uh, Marxist sphere. The only place left is China, and China has sort of, has had to go over to a mixed what the quote unquote mixed economy which is basically fascist where, where they let people make money. Um, they let people make money. Um, but they, uh, you have to do it under the auspices of the government, basically under their thumb. Um, you know, Barry, we got about, uh, seven or eight minutes left and I, okay. I, we haven't beat this horse to death, but we, we got another subject we want to, we want to get to today. Far away. I mean, I, I just wanted people to get a feel that, you know, Things are finally the, the the haze of war is starting to lift, and even the the mainstream media is starting to realize things aren't necessarily as black and white as we've been making them out to be. And that's the thing that I and I guess that's that's the whole theme today is, you know, are we marching into a brighter day or are we marching into oblivion by taking sides? Um, you have to be careful and you have to know what what lies ahead of you, and you cannot do that if everything's gray and there's fog. You know, you cannot see more than one step ahead of you. So it, we have to, in our geopolitics, we have to be very, very careful about how we proceed here. Exactly. Well, guess what? We also have to be careful about how we proceed in um, local and federal politics. Oh, boy, don't we ever. Uh, right now, there is a, uh, a just introduced was a Senate joint resolution resolution SJR one. That's right. Um, uh, I forget who the, uh, you know, Senators, who, Senator Michael Rooley and Senator Rob McCauley of uh, the Ohio Senate. Yeah. And no, I don't know anything about their politics. I'm unfamiliar with both, are, both, are, both are Republicans. Michael Rooley actually serves the East Palestine area where the train derailment happened. Okay. All right. And Rob McCauley is a member of Senate leadership who serves in the defiance area on the Western side. Of the okay. Senate. All right. So, uh, uh, but what th this is, uh, um, SJR one is a, um, a call for a new constitutional convention for the purpose of, um, setting congressional term limits, setting congressional term limits. Now, which I, I have to argue with them. And, and, and on the first instance, this was already tried through uh, other auspices and found to be unconstitutional. So I get what they're trying to do is, well, we're going to change the Constitution so it is constitutional to limit members of Congress's terms. Yeah, they're going to run into a number of problems with this. But right, right. Um, and, 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 and frankly, the people of the United States have the ability to limit the terms of congressmen. I've argued out that of office. every time one of these term limits things comes up, I go, do you not realize you already have the ability to limit a congressman, senator, president, uh, representative's term, a mayor, a city councilman, 
name the office. You don't need term limits. What you need to do is vote them out of office when they get when they get outside their scope of office. Yeah, it's true. And and well, it's too hard to do with the parties. And I'm okay. Thank you for walking into my trap. Because once you um, do the term limit thing, what you do is you empower the parties. And people always say, well, how can that be? How are the parties empowered? When you limit the term of a congressman who won't toe the line and do the bidding of the, for instance, the Chamber of Commerce or the big money boys that bring lots of money into the party apparatus, but are rebels and say, no, we're not doing that because it's unconstitutional. The party will do everything they can. They'll wait them out. If you've got an eight-year limit on your term, they'll wait till your eight years expire and you don't get another smell of the office except by sitting out a term. They'll they'll replace you uh, with a with the person um, who who will do the bidding of the Chamber of Commerce or uh, uh, the guys that uh, that uh, um, oh gosh Larry Householder and that bunch uh, First Energy and and all these guys who who brought huge amounts of money into the party but were corrupt you know as absolutely corrupt as you can be they're not. Uh, mm -hmm. they're not uh, uh, utterly corrupt. There is no such thing as utterly corrupt except uh, Satan. Uh, but uh, um, what what that means is that that guy who was your ally, your friend, can no longer do the work he needs to be able to do to protect you. Now you're at the mercy of the party. And he has to fight his way back in. It empowers the political parties because they then are in complete control of what the members of the legislature and the governorship do because of that money. The money that everybody hates, that everybody wants to see stopped, is in control of these legislators. And term limits is not the answer at all. What's the answer? It's uh, making it much easier for people to run for office, to make the parties follow their own rules, to not endorse in primaries, to make money from the party available to all announced candidates. All these things would make a, a much smoother playing field, an equal playing field, rather than getting elites elected to office. So are we going about it the right way? No, we're going about it completely the wrong way. And completely backward. we already see the results of it in Ohio. Okay. We can see the yes. damage that term limits have done here. People say, well, it's not bad. Isn't it? Oh, no. You and I know of many legislators who have been forced out um, because the party doesn't like them. And why doesn't the party like them? Because they don't kowtow to the special interest groups that bring money into the party. I'm thinking of Ron Hood. I'm thinking oh, of yeah. Tom Brinkman. Uh, yeah. You could probably come up with a half dozen or more, more than I can. These guys. Oh, I, can, I can come up with quite a few, yes. Yeah, I, I'm willing to bet. The fact is that 
when it's bad at the state level, it's a, a disaster at the federal level. You, and, and you know, and there's this whole little thing too about if the um, state legislature wants congressional term limits, there's usually a reason. It's because they have term limits and they want to move up. Yeah. And if they can, and if they can force Congress to be limited too, then that gives them more slots to try to jump into when it's there when it's they feel it's their turn to become your federal representatives. And that's really what this is about. Because let's put it this way: there is no way in heaven or earth right now, other than him, you know, physically being incapacitated, dying, or resigning in some kind of disgrace, that anybody in the northwestern area around Allen County and others are going to unseat Jim Jordan from Congress. But you have two or three major politicos, including the Senate president, Matt Huffman, the former House speaker, um, and others who all live in that area. And so, you know, when they, especially like the, well, the last House speaker, Bob Cup, you know, he got to the end of his term last year. There was no place for him to go because Jim Jordan was running for Congress again. Yeah. And. Yeah. And but but if but if Jordan if they passed a term limits resolution and got the got a convention you know and of course they say for the sole purpose of passing a term limit we both know that's a fake you cannot limit a convention which has more authority than your legislature there's no such thing as a limited convention there's no such thing as that that beast doesn't exist so everybody talks about oh you're afraid of a runaway convention no I'm not afraid of one. They're not, they're not running away. They are exercising their due power. And that due power is you can limit them all you want to as a lower uh, jurisdictional body. You're not going to be able to enforce it because they are the highest jurisdictional body in a political subdivision. When a convention's called, whether it's a state convention or a federal convention, they have all the power. And you as a lower body, as a, a sub uh, powerful body, don't. And so you can't look up at them and say, well, we're told you, you can't do that. Well, who are you telling who, you know, that because right. we actually, right. the convention can dissolve your constitution. The, 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 the convention can dissolve your form of government. That's right. If they vote and choose to do so. Yep. That's what happened originally in 1780 and, and 1789, 1787, 1787, 1789. Yeah. Uh, with the final, with the ninth state ratifying the constitution, those states left the old union. Now, what happened yes, to the, what happened to the four that remained? Guess what? They were members of a four-member union, and and none of them liked that prospect very much, and they came into the new union. So, with some kicking and screaming, yes, with some kicking and screaming, and that's why we have the Bill of Rights, by the way. Exactly. Um, okay, we're out of time. Uh, Figured as much. I, uh, this is going to pop up again. You and I, uh, at least I will be, I know you have in the past and I have in the past, will be helping out uh, uh, the groups that will be in opposition to this thing. Um, mm-hmm. I'm about to contact Robert Owens, uh, who was a, who's a patriot in this. Mm-hmm. I've already kind of posted a few times on uh, Publius Holder there on, uh, on Facebook. So, uh, but that being said, we are out of time. You know what we think. We want to know what you think at www.principledpolicy.com. That's principledpolicy.com. And join us again next week for another Principles and Policies. 
If you messed up, like I did when I was your age in college, know that God loves you just the way you are. Come here, seven-year NFL veteran Steve Grant at the 14th annual RUC Fundraising Banquet. The theme this year is Choosing to Win. Join us for this special evening at the Villa Milano on March 10th. Festivities begin at 6, followed by dinner at 6.30, and then the program at 7 p.m. Make your reservations today at RelationshipsUnderConstruction.com.